Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Joe DiMatos. Thank you so much for tuning in again to our edition today of HFAM Quality Care Talks. Again, this podcast is brought to you by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland. I'm Joe DiMatos, the president and CEO of HFAM. And I just feel so blessed today to be with my friend and colleague, Dr. Shahed Aziz, who has boards in pediatrics medicine, medical management, hospice, and palliative care. Doctor, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, your work in pediatrics and hospice and palliative care really inspires me. And we have some mutual friends in common. And we do work together, which we'll get to, but we do work together on some ethics boards. And based on that work, I just knew that we had to record an HFAM Quality Care Talks podcast with you as our special guest. So can you tell me and our listeners about the background you have and how you came to your work in pediatrics, hospice, and palliative care? Okay, I uh, trained as a pediatrician to start with, so I did general pediatrics, but I've always done academic medicine, so worked at hospitals. I was assistant chair at St. Agnes Hospital in Baltimore, and then I was chair of pediatrics at Harbor Hospital in Baltimore. And in that process, I saw inpatients, critical patients, outpatients, ER, all of that, and then got very interested in diabetes and diabetic children, and that became a major part of my life. But then I became the medical director at Harbor Hospital. And in that role, I also became the chair of the ethics committee at the hospital. And in that ethics committee process, almost all of the consults that came to us had to do with end of life. And the majority of them came from the adult ICU. So I've done a lot of uh, consults on that. And I realized that this area of end of life and handling all the issues that come with it in terms of the aggressive treatments or no treatments, is a very difficult time for patients, families, and the healthcare givers. You know, we're very fortunate on the podcast that we have a broad cross-section of listeners. We have obviously people uh, that are listening that are involved in post-acute and long-term care. They do it for a living. Everything from administrator to physician to nurse to nurse practitioner to nurse's aide, you know, all of the rehabilitative services. We have a great breadth in the listenership on that side. We also have folks that are related to us in some way that may be, you know, spouses, partners, family members who listen to our podcast who maybe don't have the same medical background as you or some of our members So thinking about that, thinking about the broad reach of our audience, often people confuse palliative care and hospice care. Can you unpack those types of care a little bit with our listeners? Sure, sure. When we say palliative care, we are just just another layer of a supportive care to general care that the patient has. And it can be, this focus is more on managing symptoms and supporting patients and families so that there is less suffering. 
So it could be physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. So we have a team that helps in all of that. And this can be given and we started at the start of, let's say, a, a diagnosis of cancer. So while the patient is getting curative treatments, he can be avail himself, if necessary, of the palliative treatments. Hospice is nothing more than palliative treatments much later in life when the lifespan is now short and we feel that patients uh, is not going to survive more than maybe six months. Then Medicare will cover all the cost and that's at that time is the same care, but you can call it hospice because the payment structure now changes. Right. It becomes hospice when the end is near. Right. When the end exactly. is near. Now, exactly. tell us a little bit, our listeners a little bit about these ethics conversations that you were first confronted in right. uh, in educational medicine in these medical centers. Sort of, yeah. yeah so, share a bit about that. So in all those, most of those concepts had to do with should we resuscitate somebody or not if they arrest? Should we stop aggressive treatments? Should we stop the ventilators? Uh, what kind of uh, surgeries or procedures are okay to give to the patient? So the simplest way to think of ethical clinical decision-making is that all our actions have to be for the good of the patient. And if we know and we can define that good, and that good is in keeping it what the patient's values, wishes, and goals are in life and the quality of life that the patient wants to pursue at a minimum level, then if the answer is yes to all of those questions, then we're doing ethically the right thing. Now, what makes those complicated across all settings is that oftentimes patients and family members have different expectations, different aspirations, different objectives. Right. And it gets complicated. It's very complicated. You must have been put in literally thousands of very difficult conversations throughout your career. That's, that's exactly true. During those con- um, and because of this uh, this work with ethics, I got very interested in trying to make it better for the patient and the families and for the healthcare workers. So that I changed my my whole focus of uh, from general pediatrics onto just doing hospice and palliative medicine. And then I started working in a hospice and I started a palliative care program at one of the local hospitals. And a pediatric hospice program helped me in, in another hospice. And then did my boards in hospice and palliative medicine because I felt this was the calling for my life to do this work to help people. Well, you know, uh, let's get it out there for our listeners that you remain the team physician at Montgomery Kids at Montgomery Hospice. And earlier in your career, you started the palliative care program at Laurel Regional Hospital and Pediatric Services. Right. You also wrote a book on the subject. What drew you to write the book? The book is called Courageous Conversations on Dying, The Gift of Palliative Care. Right. The the book actually is a practical guide for doctors and healthcare workers and for general public on how to have these difficult conversations about what is important to them in life, especially near the end, how they want to live, how they don't want to live. So that once we have those goals clear and those are known, then the plan of care as to what to do with the patient becomes much easier. So remember earlier I talked about our actions being for the good of the patient. So if we know at a minimum what the patient is willing, is considering a meaningful life in terms of their mental functioning, physical functioning, and we know as to what kind of treatments they 
are willing to accept as long as we can get them to those levels, the decision becomes so much easier than having to talk to the family if the patient cannot. So the question comes up, oh, why should, why is it important to talk now? Because I'm in a fairly good health. Well, this is the time to talk because <laughs> you don't know how long you have, and especially you don't know how long you have your capacity to make sane decisions. And before you lose that capacity, now is the time to have that conversation. You have a section at the end of your book that makes it really simple. I mean, you talk through some really basic questions at the end of your book. Right. So those three questions that we talk about that uh, you really just uh, need to know are those of that uh, if your life is being prolonged by artificial means, what is the minimum acceptable mental function for you? And what is the minimum acceptable physical function for you that you would say, as long as I can do these, life is still meaningful, therefore continue to prolong my life. And if not, then ethically, medically, legally, one can stop all those life-prolonging treatments and let the nature essentially take its course because life is not now meaningful to you. But if you did not have these conversations, your family doesn't know what's important to you. It becomes a huge burden on the shoulder of the family to try and make those decisions. So this is the best gift you can give your loved one is to have these conversations now, have them openly, candidly, and then you would live as well as you want to and hopefully die as well as you want to. That's powerful, incredibly powerful. Let's talk a minute specifically about ethics committees and just in general and plugging into ethics communities. How can providers in the post-acute space plug into post-acute long-term care, plug into ethics committees in Maryland and use them as a resource on these important ethical discussions. Let me say this one disclaimer before you answer. You know, there are about 230 skilled nursing and rehab centers in Maryland. Right. And the reality is, is that most of the people that check into those centers go home stronger and better, right? Right. So on any given center, you know, 20, 25% of the patients are on Medicare and they're in those centers on average about 27 days. Uh So if, you know, 20% of the patients in the center go on a Medicare stay and they stay on average 26, 27 days, they go home and they're stronger. What excites me about that process, right, Mm -hmm. is the opportunity to educate people while they're in that space, right? Right, right. right. You know, the vast majority of people that go into skilled nursing and rehab centers in Maryland, because those 20% of beds are rotating every 27 days, are going home, right? Right. And so given that environment, what excites me about it is that we're kind of a place where we can help consumers educate. But going back to the question... There's another group of patients in these centers who are closer to the end. They're mm-hmm. not quite at the end. Right. But they might not even be receiving palliative care right. yet, much right. less hospice right. care. But they're much sicker and they right. have many comorbidities. And so those professionals in those skilled nursing and rehab centers, going back to the question, how can they tap local ethics networks or the state ethics committee that you and I sit on? How can that be a resource to these healthcare professionals? Okay, so in uh, Maryland, we are lucky that we have a Maryland Healthcare Ethics Committee network. As you know, it's uh, JCHO in 1995, included in its standards for accreditation of both acute and long-term care facilities, that they establish a functioning process to address ethical issues. So if you become a member of the Maryland 
Healthcare Ethics Committee Network, you have multiple benefits. I think one of the biggest benefits is that you will have access to consultants to help you resolve ethical dilemmas in your institution. And you can call on those experts in real time when you face a dilemma. Yes, you can call them real time. If you have some and you want to discuss those cases later, you can do that. And you can also, in addition, you will be getting the Mid-Atlantic Ethics Committee newsletter, which has a lot of good information. It comes out three times a year. The staff will get 20% discount on network conferences. You get to participate in network discussion forums and journal clubs. And you have or collaborate for educational events. What excites me network. about the network, of course, is that it takes an interdisciplinary approach. So you're talking about physicians, nurses, social workers, faith leaders, and attorneys, all as a resource. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a since uh, actually all of our ethics work and uh, the, the palliative care work and hospice work, they all really involve team effort to help not just the institution or the patient, but the family as well. So So. important. It's so very important. You are listening to Quality Care Talks, produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM. Thanks for joining us as we discuss leadership and innovation in Maryland's long-term and post-acute care industry. To learn more, please visit www.hfam.org. And now, back to the conversation. I got to ask you, what gets you motivated when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. What gets me motivated? I think there are two major things. Uh, as you know, I've been in academics and teaching all my life. That that's sort of very dear and near to me. So, so I would say the first uh, thing that motivated me is the opportunity for caring and helping others heal, easing their suffering, providing compassion, and helping them achieve peace. Mm. Mm. So when I consult, I say, my job really is to help you with your decision-making, help you with your goals so that you be at peace, that you're doing the right thing for yourself. And if I'm talking to a family, that they be at peace, they're doing the right thing for their loved one. I hit the pause button there because I want to make sure the listeners understand the power of that. You know, when you think of palliative care and hospice, right. goals is not the, it's not the word that you first think of, right? right? And you do it in such an empowering way that you actually do think of goals right. the way you set it up. Right. Wow. Right. Because uh, as we say, goals of care, where you want to go, what you want to be, how you want to be, drives the plan of care. What we do, what we offer you in terms of treatments and procedures is dependent upon where you want to go and if we can achieve that or not. If not, we may talk to you and say these goals are unreasonable, unachievable. Let's talk about what is next. The second thing that motivates me is educating the professionals and the non-professionals. I do a lot of public education on this issue. Right. That's also unique because generally in our sector, it's peer-to-peer or professional-to-professional. It's right. very and consumer to consumer. Right. One of the things that excites me, we have a conference coming up in April in Annapolis. We hope that you'll present at it, by the way. Okay. But one of the things that excites us about the conference that we have coming up is that we are going to have consumers talking about their health story. Oh. You know, and that's going to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's going to be absolutely pretty cool. So let me ask you it's clear that you evolved what started as your medical mission and your pediatric mission from pediatrics to medical management to hospice and palliative care, all of which you have boards in. It's clear that that's become 
your mission along with the education that you just spoke of and that mission to educate both individuals, professional caregivers and people, just public, members of the general public. What role do governing values play in your life in all of this work? And can you talk to us a little bit about those governing values? Yeah. So a couple of things, values that uh, sort of play in this is uh, one is that always keep thinking about the good This is what your actions are going to bring. And the other value is to value the wishes and uh, the goals of the patient. So the autonomy of the patient, his or her ability to self-determine what happens to me and what kind of life I live. The other is the that good information results in good decisions. Mm. So without having enough good information, without understanding you as a person, I can't really advise you well right. as, to, as to where where to go. So so get to know the people, building positive relationships and trust in a collaborative approach to all of this, transparency and having conversations that are candid, truthful and compassionate. Challenging to do though, yeah. Okay. You, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but, uh, but I think if if you don't Keep those things in mind. You may not end up really doing a good, good, good work and helping people that you could otherwise. So at this point in your career, you're still going incredibly strong, but we all have so many minutes and so many seconds in the day. Right. What do you consider when you wake up every day urgent in your personal and in your professional lives? What must you do as you embark on the day? Well, on a daily basis, like I said earlier, you know, it's uh, uh, did I today end up helping somebody achieve the steps that are getting them closer to their goal? Mm-hmm. Did I end up educating people on uh, the importance of uh, where they're going and maybe helping them with their uh, uh, how they want to live, what kind of quality of life they want to have near the end of life? I feel my daily mission is to help patients and public focus on the goals of living and quality of life. And if we can do that well, then there will be less suffering. There'll be easy decision-making. There'll be more cohesion between different, uh, the workers and the receivers, the givers and the receivers. Right. Okay. So um, so th- that sort of is like my daily work, <laughs> if you uh, call it. Does that... Uh, yeah, no, it's great. That? It's great. So we're coming down to the end of our time together for this interview. And I have three relatively quick questions for you. Okay. So the first quick question is... Who are some of the leaders and heroes who have inspired your life? Okay. You know, if uh, you look at my book, it's really dedicated to a lot of people. Right. A lot of people have affected me and helped me learn, including my patients and uh, even my students. Mm -hmm. uh, And, of course, family and friends and collaborators. So if I was to look at, uh, point out a couple of people that I felt were really great mentors and that have made a big difference. One, I would say is Dr. Fred Heldrick, who was the chair of my department and my chair and my mentor for at least 14 years. And so I I learned from his humility, his caring um, manner, his compassion, his clinical judgment, always doing going out of his way to help the family and the kids. So he was, he was a pediatrician, of course. Mm-hmm. The second person that comes to my mind is my father, mm. who taught me how to accept death as part of life. Wow. And how to know clearly as to how you wanted to live 
near the end of life and how he didn't want to live. And this actually, his story is in my book also. And at the time when he was talking about these things to me, I wasn't even in hospice and palliative medicine. I didn't quite, now I realize how powerful that was and how that has really helped me in terms of getting this message across to my patients and families and friends. And the uh, second question is, tell us a little bit more about your book. Just where can people get it and uh, okay. why must they pick it up and take a look at it? Well, my book uh, is very easy to find. It's on Amazon. So it's Amazon.com. And I just uh, either you put my name or the n- name of the book, which is Courageous Conversations on Dying, The Gift of Palliative Care by Shai Aziz. And I've, uh, many p- folks, many uh, Lay people have bought the book and many, of course, professionals have bought the book. And even the lay people just uh, have been, uh, what you call it, helped Mm -hmm. in their decision making by the book because it is very practical, gives you all kinds of uh, examples from different people as to how they have made their advanced uh, care planning and advanced directives with their family. See, if you look at the, the formal advanced directives, most of them just talk about two or three conditions, which really by itself is not enough to have a good advance directive because they don't really necessarily talk about good. They say any other thing you can write in there. But my emphasis, and as the book shows you, is on those minimum acceptable levels of living that is meaningful to you. And once we know that, we know we don't need to push you artificially into situations that are not meaningful to you. And then the decisions on treating, not treating, decreasing, letting go, helping families be okay with it becomes so much easier and better. That's incredible. It's that. powerful. Again, I keep using the word powerful because I'm amazed by all of it. It is, yeah. it is actually powerful. Thank you. So last question. What is the one thing you want both a professional caregiver and a consumer, a family member, a patient, what's the one thing you want each of them to know in terms of palliative and hospice care? Well, one thing I would like them to know is that this is a very helpful branch of uh, medicine. This is uh, what is going to help you in uh, tough situations and not to have the wrong impression that hospice or palliative care means or you're not going to be taken care of or you're not going to be treated. It actually people who go in hospice, even have, they live better and live longer than similar patients who don't because the care is so good. So whenever there's any question, you're not being treated right or you don't know what to do, please ask for ethics consult or palliative care consultation, and that will be very helpful. And the second thing I want to say is time is short, future is unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so please do your advanced care planning today as soon as possible. That's critical. I mean, that's really, really important. And I got to tell you, you've got me pretty psyched up and pretty motivated. So I'm going to lie and ask you one last question. (laughs) And that because I really, I care so deeply about the Maryland Ethics Network. So I want you to go over again, describing the Ethics Network, describing what you and I do at the law school and telling people again about plugging into that. So I just want to give you that opportunity to uh-huh. end on that. Okay. Again, the Maryland Healthcare Ethics Network is a multidisciplinary committee. And actually, the committee that works, uh, there's like the major committee, but in the network, there's members are multiple hospitals and individuals can be member. 
long-term facilities can be member. So we have a big membership. We do a lot of educational events. We are a resource for where people who have not done a lot of this work have questions about. And we also provide consultations to hospitals and to long-term facilities when needed. Wonderful. Dr. Aziz, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for coming and making time today for HFAM's Quality Care Talks. Most importantly, thank you for being there in Maryland for your colleagues, but also for the families that you provide care. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All the best. Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org.